This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Well, folks are uh, coming to the microphone. Perhaps uh, if I could uh, ask, uh, Ram, what do we know about uh, the status of the myocardium in those borderline um, under, the, under the EFE? Is the myocardium of the left ventricular myocardium, um, is, is it healthy? That's a great question. Uh, we suspect that the myocardium is not uh, normal. Um, you know, our uh, colleagues, uh, Andy, can probably comment uh, on this as well, but we're trying to learn more through imaging to try to understand that. We have taken biopsies uh, at times from papillary muscles and other areas as we're resecting EFE, and it's clear that uh, they have a potential to lay down more uh, scar tissue, more EFE. So um, I, I think that fibrosis is a, is a part of this. I just don't know to what extent we, uh, uh, we have that or, and, uh, and how to distinguish the patients who, uh, who don't have that from those that do. Andy, Dave. Good. Sir? Uh, thank you for the nice presentations. I would like to ask to Dr. Powell, uh, I was uh, thinking that both uh, entities that were presented were, are, were pretty different one from the other. And I think some things might be taken into consideration when talking about uh, univentricular left, or borderline left ventricle, uh, comparing with what you talk with uh, unbalanced antibiotic fatal defect. So I was wondering if you used uh, some uh, echocardiographic uh, variables that had been really consistent over time, which are, for example, the modified uh, atrioventricular valve index or the right ventral left ventricular inflow index uh, in surgical decision making. Um, well, first, I, I agree that those are, are two different situations and they should be considered differently. Um, for the unbalanced canal defect, we haven't relied heavily on the AV valve index uh, to the best of my knowledge in our surgical decision making. Um, uh, a lot of it has to do with the morphology of that common AV valve um, and uh, it's, uh, it, how it's attached, particularly on the left side. And uh, the surgeons can speak uh, more specifically to this. But uh, they're able to uh, divide the ventricle and divide that common AV valve in such a way that it can uh, essentially move some of that AV valve tissue over off to the left side. Exactly right. I, I think that uh, the, um, what you want is an adequate-sized uh, left-sided orifice. And um, when you're looking at an echocardiogram, the distribution of the leaflets over the uh, ventricles um, is, is not necessarily what has to be the case when you're, when you're operating surgically. So what we'll do is, uh, is change our septation location on the AV valve such that uh, we, uh, we're not limited anymore by uh, where it naturally uh, needs to fall. I, we use a uh, two-patch technique, and um, in my mind, that allows us uh, to really redistribute the valve in a way that uh, I find is not as possible when uh, we're using a modified single-patch technique uh, or the Australian uh, technique in which uh, the leaflets are uh, placed down onto the crest of the VSD. Thank you. 
That's great, but uh, how do you deal with the left ventricle uh, inflow? Because in that way you can divide the valve in the appropriate, uh, in the exact location, but you cannot work on the left ventricle inflow. And is there, do you take that into consideration, the left ventricle? So what I find to be a, a, a better marker of um, problems with separating the valve is really how, how the papillary muscle architecture is. So I, we focus more on what does the subvalvular apparatus look like rather than the AVI uh, index. Uh, if we have a single left ventricle papillary muscle, uh, closing the cleft will resent, result in a uh, terribly stenotic valve. And so in that situation, uh, we will have to use other techniques uh, to either create uh, two papillary muscles, if that is possible, uh, or to uh, only partially close the cleft or patch the cleft so as to not compromise the inflow to that, uh, to that valve. And uh, I'll, I'll be, uh, at, I think at one of the sessions on Wednesday, I'll be describing some of these techniques that, that, that we're using. But again, it's on echo, I'm looking more at the subvalvular apparatus than I am the distribution uh, at, the, at the level of the annulus. And what about the BSD size? Have you taken a look inside that? Because uh, the BSD size has shown to, has demonstrated to be a marker of uh, higher mortality. If you have a larger BSD, you have more mortality. Do you look into that before taking a decision? You know, I would say that probably the patients that we see the most trouble with are transitional AV canals. I, I, I think uh, it's uh, um, the large VSD patients. Uh, it's much easier to distribute uh, the valve uh, over the over the ventricles. It's when you don't have a VSD or when the tethering attachments of the superior and inferior bridging leaflet limit the ability to maneuver. Uh, that leaflet and redistribute it, what we find we have to do is actually cut many of those attachments uh, to then create a VSD, a large VSD, and then close it separately. And I find that to be very helpful. Well, thank, thank you very much. Uh, Andy, this is a question for you. So um, when you're looking at these ventricles, one of the things that you actually see is that they're much globular than a typical spherical-looking ventricle. And we know that globular ventricles do not tolerate pressure that well. And actually, long-term-wise, they have a higher chance of failing than a spherical ventricle is. Um, so have you looked into, because one of your MRIs, if you look at the septum, it looks, in a, it, the movement of the septum is actually very abnormal. So have we looked into doing some regional wall motion uh, studies or feature, using feature tracking or strain analysis or whatever to kind of see whether there's any regional wall motion abnormality in these ventricles who are, who are getting a bioventricle kind of repair uh, on borderline ventricles? Um, we didn't specifically look in that. So we didn't look at feature tracking or any regional measures in that study, um, nor did we look at um, any, me any measures of uh, sphericity, uh, which we could, of course, go back and do. Um, uh, right now, those, are, those three parameters are the ones that we primarily focused on, but thank you for the suggestion. I mean, I say it's truly remarkable what you're doing. I think uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, we're really all learning from you and what you're in the program that you're running. I guess, but my question nevertheless is that clearly a lot of your patients are not sadly going to make it through a biventricular pathway. And when we look after our single ventricle patients, the things we want to do is we do not want to volume load the circulation. We do not want to give them a restrictive atrial septum. So are you worried that the patients who don't make it are going to end up turning a good Fontan into a bad Fontan? And are there lessons you're learning as to the patients that you should have bailed out on earlier or you shouldn't even have embarked on the progress? 
Well, we're certainly learning. That part I can, I can answer very uh, easily. Um, the, the patients who have undergone single ventricle palliation after um, uh, recruitment, um, for the most part, have not uh, suffered as a, as a result of it. So we've, we've continued to the Fontan, and um, uh, the, the key there is to make sure that they don't reach a certain threshold where their um, pulmonary vasculature starts to uh, see irreversible uh, changes. And, and this is where the monitoring period uh, becomes important. It's important to make sure that we, you follow the gradient and, and bring them back for catheterization if there's any uh, concern uh, for, for um, uh, restriction of the atrial system that's leading to uh, elevated uh, uh, pressures. Um, I, will, I will say that a lot of the patients that uh, were in this series were also not necessarily con candidates for uh, Fontan either because of right ventricular dysfunction, significant tricuspid regurgitation. So we're pushing a lot of patients down the biventricular repair because they have risk factors for single ventricle uh, as well. And many of them kind of stay in a Glenn plus a shunt territory for a period of time until we, we, we can determine what the next best approach is. Uh, but, but I think it, it's very important uh, to monitor them very carefully and, uh, and intervene early. But if you do that, uh, you don't burn the bridges for, for a Fontan ultimately. How do you go around um, the way you counsel these patients in a, in a period of intense public scrutiny where one patient that you lose could have been a, a, a fontan, a good fontan? Well, I, I think it's very important uh, early on to engage them. One of the nice things about the staged approach is because it's over a period of years, you have an opportunity to really um, discuss with the families the options. So you're not committing to one approach versus the other. And uh, we have many opportunities to discuss. So I find that many of the families, when they come to a biventricular conversion, are much more prepared uh, in terms of the expectations, uh, what to expect afterwards. And I, I often kind of uh, show them the same slides I, sh I show uh, at, a, at a medical conference and, and uh, make sure they understand the, the risks and benefits. Yeah, there's no question these are hard conversations, they're long conversations, and often it's multiple conversations where you kind of reinforce what you said before, answer a new round of questions, um, and kind of go over things in, in, in maybe a different way of presenting it just to make sure I need to be confident that they understand the benefits and risks of trying to do something like this. So it, it really is an example of uh, shared decision making between the, the providers and the patients and the families. Excellent. Thank you very much. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.